<laughs> Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and we are speaking with John Crowley, filmmaker, author, poet, man of parts, and a man who knows a thing or two about the art of the occult novel. John, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. So, in effect. <laughs> yeah, virtually. You wrote a book, or a novel, let's say, called Egypt. Do you pronounce it Egypt, or do you pronounce it... I pronounce it Egypt. I yeah. think they did, yes, too. Mm. And it is an incredibly ambitious four-volume novel. You published it over a period of 20 years, but it's very clear from volume one, for reasons that we'll maybe get into, that from the beginning you had the plan of doing this big cycle, this big cyclical work. Um, and we were just talking before we started recording about an, an origin story. So maybe that is a good place to start. Well, uh, it was in about 1967, I would say. I was living in New York City on uh, down in the uh, uh, in Soho, which had just then be was becoming a place for artists and writers to live in lofts, loft buildings. And uh, I used to go across the river to the uh, Brooklyn Library. Brooklyn Public Library, it's a great, uh, a wonderful place. It's, I think unconnected to the New York City Library System it was all by itself. And I can't remember now exactly what it was that I was looking for. I had I had a couple of projects that I was thinking of, uh, none of them having to do with the kinds of topics that you are interested in. And I started looking around, poking around here and there. And I cannot remember why I was in the area of the book, probably fate. Uh, it led me down to a particular corridor, and I found this book called The Art of Memory by Francis Yates, as you know. And even a glance at it, I said, oh, oh, this is really good. <laughs> this is really fascinating. This, is, this provides a, already, you know, as I flipped through it in the, in the library, about, oh, my God, this could be the basis of something or other. I didn't really plan on it, but I did really want to read it just because of its picture of how minds worked in the past, as that's how I thought of it and how Francis Hayes thought of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, when I, coming home, I, I just I read the whole thing once or then probably read it again before handing it back to the library. Uh, and it continued to be just astonishing. The, the things that she um, <clears throat> described as being uh, premises of the arts of memory, just so entirely strange to me. They were didn't seem like anybody could ever have possibly thought about things in these kinds of ways. Uh, I mean, there was a there was a central art of memory which involved places and placing objects or codes onto memory places, and then there we can remember all this stuff, which is actually the same thing that memory artists now do today. But the other things that would just get would get stranger and stranger, where you were supposed to remember something by uh, arranging a set of objects which could be used to spell out a word. You know, you're going to spell God by starting with a sickle and then a millstone and then a, a hacksaw, <laughs> and you have God, and you're supposed to this supposed to aid you to remember God. Well, of course, if they did practice in those ways, their brains were nothing like mine. And uh, I am sure that some of them, many of them did, but others probably liked to assert that they were using this, this system when they maybe weren't, possibly weren't actually using it to remember things. But it was just, it seemed to me, I just couldn't believe that, that their mind, minds of the 15th, 16th centuries could be that different from my own in thinking. Uh, I mean, I can imagine Chinese masters of various mental arts. And I could say, yes, of course, they're different. But these are Europeans. These are my ancestors, in effect. And uh, so I, I just started brooding on it. I, I had no conception, really, at the time of writing a, a novel about it. And I think that the novel, the odd thing is the novel part of it, you know, as you, because you read the book, is that a certain amount of it takes place in a sort of imaginary renaissance period world but there's also another world which takes place in a very ordinary american setting 
somewhere in the Northeast. It's never quite clear. Uh, and but that that part of it, the uh, the uh, North American part of it, ordinary daily life thing, actually occupied the the beginning of my thinking much more than the esoterica that I was also gathering all at the same time. Interesting. Um, and reading my books like Hamlet's Mill and uh, other kinds of, uh, of very generative texts uh, as far as they related to me. So, uh, I mean, it was the, the first thing that I, first thing that took place in this journey was, I there was a, a man who uh, lived in New York City and uh, I knew him there and he had gone off to the Berkshires in Massachusetts to live, he was a he was a woodworker, a very fine woodworker, and I went up to visit him, and lived in went stayed in his cabin, uh, in the woods in the Berkshires. It came over me that I didn't have to live in New York City. Maybe I could live someplace else. And also, here I was basically living with somebody who who epitomized in some way that myth of rural wonderfulness of of good men out there laboring and doing beautiful things and you know living simply on the land and all that (laughs) so that was really kind of where it started not with the uh, as a novel it did not start with the uh, esoterica it was only after that that i started saying oh well that connects to that and this part of it mirrors that part of it and Gradually, the, the the sort of overlapping or intertwining of the two things came more and more clear. Where the, the historical stuff gets, in a certain sense, more ordinary as it goes on, and the ordinary stuff gets more mysterious as it goes on. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. That brings to the fore of my mind the idea that there is at least something. I hate I hate to say this because you know when when people look at characters and say ooh this this autobiographical in some way but there's there's some autobiography in Pierce Moffat surely of absolutely you. Um, yes because he is also a learned bookish fellow who yes. leaves New York and moves to the mysterious faraway hills in what I yes, imagined was upstate New York but you're saying it's just not. <clears throat> It's not geographically well, one, located. It's not geographically located. There's one, actually, one moment, which uh, I don't expect anybody really to get. It's one of those little kind of, uh, what do they call those things in video games? Easter egg. You're good at those um, Easter eggs. You have a lot of Easter eggs. I feel like for <laughs> oh, the ones I caught, I probably missed about 50. <laughs> well, one of them is there's a moment which uh, the I can't remember who was speaking or who, or the, who the narrator, maybe it's just the narration. But you're, if you're up on the top of the mountain there, you can look into three different states. Right. Which would be three other states. Oh. If they're not Massachusetts, they're not New York, and they're not New Jersey, where are they? There's got to be one other, but there isn't. So it's not, not in any of those three, and therefore not anywhere. Gotcha. Brilliant. <laughs> Um, the assumption is that generally most people think it's sort of upstate New York, and it, it's not really. If it was anywhere, it's the Berkshires, which is where I went and, and lived and, and wrote uh, one, at least, of the volumes. That, uh, okay, you wrote it there. So so you were staying yeah. with Spofford, the, sh- the shepherd. I moved out of New York. And no, no, I had my own apartment and everything. I was no longer a New Yorker. Mm. Okay. Quite a, rev- quite a uh, wonderful adventure, which it is for Pierce, too, in, this, in the book somehow get free of these entanglements of New York City and that awful job he had and all that. Yeah. So Now, John, to take another um, trope from modern internet culture, I'm going to say spoiler alert here for those who haven't read your novel. Um, Okay. Because I'd like to talk about, you know, what's in the novel to some degree. But I did something which I thought would be an interesting experiment. I wrote two pages. My my two-page... Introduction to what I think Egypt is about. Okay. If I read that to you, would you be into? I, if I read that to you, and then you can respond and tell me where I'm wrong, where I'm right, how it differs from how you see it. Does that sound interesting? Sure. I, I yes, absolutely. Definitely. It sounds like fun. Um. So, what I wrote. This is me yesterday, just trying to think of, you know, if someone asked me what Egypt is about, how would I describe it? 
John Crowley's Egypt is a ridiculously ambitious four-volume novel. It has two main narrative focuses, but I say this with great reluctance, but you need to start somewhere. So one is the life of Pierce Moffat, a historian of Renaissance intellectual history, who sometime in the 1970s, I guess, quits his job at a New York college and moves through a series of seeming coincidences to a spot upstate called the Faraway Hills, a realistic American setting, but also one where a certain amount of magic seems to congregate. The other main focus is a narrative set in Dame Frances Yates' territory. John Dee, Giordano Bruno, the Emperor Rudolph II, William Shakespeare, Oswald Kroll all make an appearance. And this is, let's call it historical fiction, you're taking real historical characters, but they're doing stuff that could have happened, but probably didn't. We certainly don't know it happened. Um, but yes. we don't know it didn't no, and either. By, and the longer the book goes on, the more unlikely the things are that they do, <laughs> so or seem to do. Um, so how these basics I've just gone through don't tell mm -hmm. us much about what's really going on in the books. So if we focus a little on structure, the very first volume, mm -hmm. The Solitudes, has three sections, named after the first three houses from Hellenistic astrology. So it's very clear that the work as a whole will continue until all 12 houses of astrology are covered, three to a volume, and this is indeed what happens when volume four is published 20 years later. So yeah. it's a work with a plan. And unlike yes. Pierce Moffat's book projects, it actually comes to fruition. There is a lot of self-referentiality and book-within-a-book type stuff in Egypt, because Pierce when he was growing up, got hooked or had his mind blown by an author, a fictional author called Fellows Craft, who's an author of a generation before him, um, so which reminds me of your encountering Francis Yates from what you just said. Yeah. Um, and this author, Fellows Craft, it turns out lived in the faraway hills. So when Pierce goes there, he encounters the legacy of Fellows Craft. And he wrote historical studies on people like Dee and Bruno. Now, Pierce gets the job of revising Kraft's final manuscript for publication, his unpublished book that he was working on when he died, and he eventually even retraces Kraft's footsteps on a European journey to places like Prague in the hopes of being able to do the job, but he can't. So Pierce is in some way living out Kraft's book, and the book that Pierce is supposed to be writing off his own back, which he also never completes, is based around one of the central ideas of Egypt. What if the world wasn't always the way it is now? What if, to take astrology as the example in the foreground, what if the world in which Dee and Shakespeare lived really was a geocentric cosmos? And what if Bruno's ideas about an infinite universe were somehow connected not only with the change of ideas about the world, but with an actual change in the world itself? If we lived in a world which had undergone such a grand reinstauration, would we have any way of knowing about it? Because if it's changed, it's changed retro retroactively as well. Um, Sounds good. Sounds like a good book. Yeah, so far so good, right? I'll just, I won't, I'll just bore you with a bit more of this. Are we in such a world? Pierce is supposed to be arguing in his book that he's pitching at a kind of 1970s fascination with the occult sort of audience. But Pierce himself doesn't really believe it, or at least he comes not really to believe it. However, Pierce is also depicted in the book as incredibly clueless on a number of levels. So Pierce doesn't know what's going on around him in many ways. Egypt itself, the novel, seems to leave the question open, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. What if the world did used to be different? What if it was a different type of world, if the laws were different and they changed at some point? There are another, a number of other things that, hap that seem to happen in the novel. Ghosts, the very strange episode of a phantasm of a son whom Pierce never actually fathered appearing to Pierce and interacting with him, and even a leitmotif of werewolves and witches, for God's sake, which sort of exist in an uneasy truce with the overarching tone of the book, which seems to be realist, as it were. Um, are the ghosts in the book real? This is another question for John Crowley. Why is the world the way it is, and not some other way? Was the world always the same as it is now? 
Is there a realm outside the world as it is, where it might be different? And if so, is that world the world of the human mind? Or something more metaphysically existent? Or maybe that's a maybe that question just leads down a, a false alley. Um, oh, take, no, I, I think I have an answer for that one. Okay. So I take and, these to be leitmotif questions running through the novel. Um, and I take it that if these questions are answered definitively in the novel, I missed it. It's, <laughs> it's very easy to miss stuff in Egypt, and important moments and incidents typically don't advertise themselves. They, they come with an understated presence, and if, you're not, if you blink, you'll miss it. And this is a lot of the real hinge uh, elements in the narrative just kind of pass that way. The book is also about wisdom and foolishness, sexual desire, belief in fraudulent teachings, and the possibility that these might actually not be fraudulent, uh, synchronicities, about meaning, possibly with a capital M, about fate versus choice, and about an eternal war being waged by werewolves against witches, in which the werewolves are the good guys trying to save human souls from hell, which is where the witches are trying to take them. That's my summary. <laughs> oh, that's pretty wonderful, actually. I don't think you missed a thing. Uh, that's it, that's pretty uh, pretty good. I might might uh, acquire that from <laughs> whatever cost you want to put on. I'll put it in the. Uh, it it's in really the very. It's it's it is a very good summary of what's of what is in there and doesn't really doesn't really miss much. The only problem with it is that readers of that would have no real no real idea of how those things actually play out in the, mm. the actual story. Which is uh, good because is. maybe maybe I haven't spoiled anything. Maybe I've just whetted people's appetite. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's impossible to spoil them. The things are just too curious and too, um, how would you say? Uh, I wouldn't say corrupted exactly. That's not the right word. But how things that seem to be on their way and to be concluded so often aren't in the book. And even when they're concluded, they, the, the conclusion tends to be some, a dream or some sort of uh, vatic experience that uh, uh, doesn't actually conclude something in, in even a fictional world. It just stops. I mean, the, there's, there's a character in there uh, <clears throat> whom Pierce Moffat falls in love with and uh, it's, uh, leads, is led a very difficult and tortuous and painful experience with her and in the end she just disappears we don't know what actually became she writes him of uh, after having gone away finally for and forever writes him a letter which restores all of his feelings and so on but the actual last thing which he is sure is reliable in some way is a dream that he has about her mm. in which she she can she's she has been practicing what he thinks of as religious magic with this weird cult she's joined and but the last thing he sees her do is in this dream where she holds up a big kitchen match and stares at it and it catches fire to see pierce see what i can do and he wakes up in terror <laughs> at this moment and that but that's it that's the end of uh, of her story as 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 the book engages it so and there's a lot of things like that. I think you hit the hit it perfectly. That there are things that begin and and even though they continue to enrich, I think, uh, or evolve, they don't often come to a conclusion. Fellows Craft never finishes his book, uh, and Pierce Moffat never finishes either Fellows Craft's book as he was assigned to do, or his own book. But we don't know. Also, are the pages that we are reading? of esoteric discovery and renaissance magic and history life are they fellows crafts pages are they pierce moffat's pages or are they my pages and it's really almost impossible a lot of the time anyway not always but a lot of the time to know which is which and that's deliberate i mean i, I that's not a mistake <laughs> i meant it to do that do so. you know do you know what is when you're writing this kind of text so so we have this uh, Renaissance narrative going on, which mm -hmm. indeed could be something out of a fellow's craft historical. Yes. I mean, does he yeah. write history or does he write romance, historical romance? What does he write? Well, all the oh, ones that he, all the, all the books that fellow's craft wrote are described as standard uh, romantic history novels. 
right. uh, about various historical episodes and the same uh, the kind of thing that was very popular when I was young and did read all the Thomas Costain and and Chellebarger and people like that, you know, the Black Rose and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I describe Kraft as writing those kinds of books, but when, when Pierce uh, discovers a huge manuscript in Fellows Kraft's house and starts to read it, he realizes, no, 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 this isn't one of, this isn't what Fellows Kraft writes. Uh, and it's, and it's, and it's difficult to understand how it would fit with his fairly mundane set of historical romances. The way, the re, part of the reason for it is that we only learn later is that he is writing it in order to repay his great friend and the, one of the uh, sort of gods of the book who is uh, very uh, rich and, and very taken up by the idea that esoteric medicine, uh, Renaissance style in some way is gonna produce it for him a medicine that will allow him to live forever. Mm. And even though John Dee doesn't believe this as a thing, uh, it wouldn't seem anyway, and certainly Pierce Moffat doesn't doesn't believe it as a thing. Fellows Craft is actually involved in trying to create a story for his mentor that will either discourage him finally <laughs> or satisfy him. And of course, you can't finish something like that. So it's left to to uh, Pierce, who inherits Craft's duties from right. the old man, the old mentor, who is uh, trying to get these guys who seem to know everything to come up with a, something that will keep them alive forever. Yeah. Bony Rasmussen. So it is. And in a certain sense, you're, you are in a mix of all of these things and none of them are going to finally come to, come, come to it. But very odd. Yeah. Thank you for that exposition. That explains you're, you're happy to leave these things indeterminate. There's layers of fictionality and there's also, there isn't really a, primary real world in the narrative is there i don't think there is no uh it, no because the the there is a uh, a world which you could imagine at, or you could consider as imaginary that is the magical stuff that goes on in the past and john d is like talking to angels and there's vampires and werewolves and all that kind of stuff and then there is what you might think of as the ordinary world but actually the ordinary world is pervaded pervaded by magic and yeah. possibilities and all that kind of stuff the one that i love that i like the best that i thought was the most winning you talked about the witches and werewolves there's uh, a werewolf in the story yeah. those changes form back and forth continuously and finally we learn that like a lot of uh czech and uh slavic guys he came to america as a uh, a migrant and a miner was a miner like a lot of the slavic men who came to the, kentucky which is where this a lot of part of the good part of the story takes place in pierce's childhood and he is uh the the, the connector to what pierce learned as a child about imaginary beings in the mines and in the, uh, that they could actually change coal into diamonds and stuff like that. But that somehow is actually a result of this character from the 17th century who has eventually makes his way, or his sons, child, children make their way to this, the same community working in the most ordinary jobs, mining coal. And yet they carry this, this legacy of their own about the witches and the werewolves, which we have actually seen play out in some of the folklore and events uh, that happen around Pierce in the, in the Kentucky world. He meets a witch, he meets a, uh, he hears stories of uh, <clears throat> what magic things can be done in the, in, the, in the hills. And so it all kind of finally does knit together. But it, And it knits together even say, more subtly than that, because then, the, so that bloke is, he's, to color in his character a little more, he's like a he's like an um, Appalachian hick, fire and brimstone Christian miner living right. in this little yes. squalid shack, and he has this right. girl that he's not she's not his daughter, but he sort of ends up raising her because her parents yes. were yeah. just kind of 
abandoned her. I think I think her mother her, her mother died, and that was the daughter of the guy. I can't remember. The, the connections got very complicated. So this little girl has a big influence on Pierce. He encounters her. She's yes. like from another world as far as he's concerned because he's raised in this yes. kind of quite civilized family. His, do- his dad's a doctor. They're Catholic. They, um, they are book learned. And this, girl, yes. this little girl is basically a savage, right? But, she, yeah. but he will right. encounter her. Their destinies are entwined. He will encounter her yeah. as an adult, Absolutely. though he doesn't know it's her. <laughs> no, it's her, right? Exactly. In fact, he, is in, he encounters her on, that, on the same journey, dark journey, which he's trying to go on to rescue the woman he loved back in the faraways. And he had this terrible, agonized relationship with her. He, on the way of trying to find her, he runs into this girl from Kentucky who's now grown up and an ordinary person, as far as we can tell. Yeah. And uh, he, he doesn't know. He has no clue what he's seen and who he's met. Or she doesn't either. Mm. So, yeah, I think that does, I think that, that it's one of those things where, where two things kind of come together like this. They don't really mesh like this. They, do, they sort of slot in with one another, but don't complete mm. the stories completely. It's a kind of a mode that I have always liked uh, writing. It's it's really interesting to me because large amounts of the um, the narrative that take place in the modern American North American setting mm-hmm. lull you into thinking that we're dealing with a fictional world where something like non magical realism prevails, right? Uh-huh. And yes. Pierce Pierce's when he reflects on, for example, his work on the pro, his his work on, he's supposed to be writing this book, arguing that the world used to be different. That in the Renaissance and the early modern period, people actually lived in the cosmos of Marsilio Ficino and William Shakespeare. That the universe, the earth was at the center, there were spheres, God was outside the spheres. It really used to be that way astrology really used to function because it was like scientifically uh it 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 functioned the way electricity does nowadays it was just simply (laughs) it worked because that's how the kind of universe it was in right exactly but the universe changed this there's this image of the this wind blowing through in prague and just changing suddenly there's an, an instauration which is something that early modern thinkers like d and the alchemists were really obsessed with millenarian yes, hopes were. that the universe was going to be remade in some way great installation <clears throat> right. the the rosicrucians as well um exactly this, so he's writing this book in which that is the premise but he yes. doesn't believe it right he's a total skeptic <laughs> of it right or it, like That's he's right. playing with it like an intellectual toy but he doesn't feel it in his bones he doesn't really believe it in right. his bones i feel like that's true, and I think that the the, the uh, another aspect of that is that he keeps the things keep on impacting him, even though he doesn't believe it. Yeah. In other words, he can't he he can't uh, he cannot believe the things that were believed by not only Bruno and those people, but by the various girlfriends he's had and uh, other people who have sort of led him, and uh, including Fellows Craft, and he still even though he has all these clues that the modern world even can be understood in this way, he can't really believe it. Even though there are passages in the book which describe that reality taking place in the modern world. And in other words, that a passage year is coming or has just come or he's living through a passage year in which everything's going to be turned around and come out different the other, the other end. And it doesn't ever really seem to. <laughs> but uh, it is, it's hard to deny it for what it is as you're reading the book. You say, wait a minute, is this going to really happen? Is this well, the world we're going to end up in some sort of, you know, alternative world? No, you never quite do. Well, uh, you know, Swedenborg, so that, I think, <laughs> it reminds me of Swedenborg who argued that he had he found a really neat way around the whole millenarian problem. He just said, well, the, the apocalypse already happened. <laughs> and you just didn't notice it just wasn't that big a deal or big a deal. <laughs> al- alternately can't know what the world was like before the apocalypse because you're on the other side of the apocalypse you're you're living that's in right. the new that's jerusalem right. well that's that's exactly right and 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 it's said more than once that once you've passed over into this new world you cannot recapture the old world 
it's gone. It's not. It, it won't. It, it won't yield up truths. Right. Become new truths. And very, it is very sweet. <laughs> I think the one most wonderful thing about Swedenborg, to me, is that uh, once you pass over, cross over, and end up in uh, heaven, you are actually in the same world you came from. It's just you know you have angels flying around and everything is wonderful and there's no pain and there's no suffering and everybody is joyful. But you're still at home with the family and you know <laughs> eating meals and <laughs> yeah. it's uh, I think it's an amazing conception. There's there's some really yeah there's there's lots of novels I think that have multiple narratives going on in different time streams oh. and in some way or another try to show the links between them right this is this is actually mm -hmm. quite seemingly a quite a common conceit maybe even increasingly in modern novels so you have you have yeah. a narrative in the past and then you have a narrative in the present and it's gradually revealed that the events that took place so long ago are actually playing out now right in some way mm -hmm. but the way yeah. the past and the present interlock in your novel is way more uh first of all, it's not one directional. So the present is affecting the past in right. some way. Yes, exactly. um, you even have proper magic going on where the young girl has got a hold of John Dee's showstone or one of them mm -hmm. and is looking yes. into it. And then it seems that John Dee is seeing her at the other end yes. back in the 16th century right. going, what angel are you? And she's saying, and she, you know, <laughs> and, and, yes. and what are those strange clothes you're wearing? Kind of thing. <laughs> So there really is, there are, there's links in both directions between the two time yes, lines. Yes, that's right. And that's right. That's exactly bleed. right. I tried to be very cautious about that. I was afraid that people would find that just so interesting and so uh, basic that I would have to go on and on explaining how the 16th century looked at the 20th century. And I just, I said, no, no, I, one clue is good. That's fine. It's a beautiful image. And she is a magical person, that child, uh, in many ways. But I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't make a con that kind of connection, or I'd be at it forever. And I don't think it would be all that. Uh, I wouldn't. It wouldn't be as interesting as letting people suppose things about yeah. the connections between all these various worlds. Well, I like that. That again, you're leaving the question of realism, the question of is there a base reality, a basic reality that has kind of laws, stable laws, and yeah. then these other realities which are maybe more fantastic or something. It's like, no, they, not, none of these worlds has stable laws, it seems to me. Is that, yeah. do you think right. that's... That's right. Valid? Absolutely true, yes. Things. I mean, I think that, I think that I, I, I talked to students, I've taught creative writing for years and years, and um, I always tell them, you write it, you can write a realistic story or novel, but a re if, a, if it's a realistic story, to me, it has to have some quality, however small, of the impossible and the mysterious and the um, unbelievable. Because I, I, I think we do live in a world like that. The world we live in does have those qualities. It's, it's inherent in our, in, in, you know, the existence of brains and minds and time and all of that stuff, we do have. We experience it constantly, whether in dreams or in foretellings or impossible coincidences or a, a weird match of some person in the past to some person in the present where you can, you have to somehow regard them as the same person uh, recurring again. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's just central to writing realistic novels is in order to be realistic, it has to have this act somewhat some kind of aspect of irrealism so magical realism is the only realism that's yes. actually realistic <laughs> yeah i think so i mean think of 100 years of solitude it's very easy to regard the 100, 100 years of solitude as a realistic novel about a bolivian or colombian uh, uh remote civilization remote uh people and remote town and all that but of course, they believe, and they're they're quite comfortable in believing that these kinds of crazy things happen all the time. The acceptance of them is part of the uh, the wonder of it. They don't get they're not surprised, you know, when the, when the May uh, goes flying up into the air off uh, off the roof, uh, or all those the, the insane things that happen, because there's so much of it is actually obviously quite realistic and exactly what it must have been exactly like in the 19th century in that part of the world. Mm. It's 
I, I think that the, somehow we owe that debt to readers that they are going to be lifted or upraised or, you know, shown something that they had not expected to when they picked up a realistic book. Another another example is Thomas Pynchon is always keeps messing around with that sort of stuff too. He's always willing to insert some crazy possibility that uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. We're actually here to talk about you, not about yes. Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> well, let's talk about Piers Moffat a bit more. And um okay. and who it's a bit like talking about you maybe in some oblique way. It is. Yes. Um can I just ask you a few questions that come to my mind about the book? Sure. Um, I have the ear of the author, and I just have a bunch of unanswered mm-hmm. questions. Nothing to do with Western esotericism per se, but very interesting to me. Why is Pierce so clueless? So he, he can't tell his left from his right. He has some kind of orientation. It seems maybe like a psychological condition where he just gets lost wherever he is. He can't drive. He, he's In some ways, he's like a big baby. Like He can't really deal with the world and... He, you know, do his taxes and stuff like that. He's very unworldly in that way. So he's a bit of a scholar with his head in the clouds. But he also, I mean, he's really clueless. Like stuff happens around him, really important stuff. People going, Pierce, do you get what I'm saying? He's like, "Uh, no, I just have no idea what you're saying. You know, this, so what's, what's going on there? I have to swear you to secrecy. Of course, you can't do that on a podcast. But I can't tell left from right. I have a terrible, all my life. Really? I have have a difficulty realizing Somebody says turn left. I don't really. I don't. I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do next. Uh, yeah, I know, but I uh, it, uh, very frequently. Okay. I, I go. I go off the rails that way, and um, that the kind of interiority that you're always in, uh, that Pierce is always in, no matter how no matter how he's actually talking to ordinary people and learning information and stuff like that, he's always thinking in a different way. It's like it's like that great. Uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland poem, The White Knight. Well, I was thinking of a way, you know, he takes the, he meets the old man sitting on the fence. It's a parody of a Wordsworth poem. And he tell, asks him, how do you live? Tell me how you live. And the guy says, well, I do this and that. And he stops the, the White Knight, instead of thinking about this person he's, and the thing that he's telling him, thinks of other things. So I was thinking of a way, I was thinking of a way to keep the Mene Bridge from rust by boiling it in wine. <laughs> And then he gets his himself. So tell me, tell me more about your life. And I tries to tell him more. And he says, no, no, I was thinking of a way to feed myself on batter. <laughs> so go on from day to day, getting a little fatter. <laughs> so I'm a little bit like that too. I I do uh, drift off. I'm afraid to say. So I don't think that. Uh, I think Pierce got himself in getting difficulties and screw ups that I would never have have gotten into. I don't think. But nonetheless, the possibility is is actually yes. Interesting. The only strange thing, and somebody remarked and said, "Ah, didn't believe that," was that Pierce is supposed to be tall, big, kind of clumsy, big, you know, big hands and stuff like that. And I'm not. I'm like you know, I'm about. I get shorter every day nowadays in my old age, but. Oh, you know, I'm, I never got much above five foot eight, you know, in my life. So, uh, it's, and it has been remarked upon not only by people that know me, but other people. He says, he doesn't seem like a tall guy. <laughs> he doesn't seem to have the kind of physical bigness that, you know, a character, as you describe him, as you claim him to be. So, but that was one way I, I had to do something to get him away from me to a certain extent. To be different from you. Well, another difference yeah. is that you actually finish lots of books. Yes, I did. <laughs> and he true. doesn't. He's frustrated, basically. Although, I will say, some really, really interesting stuff happens to Pierce in the final volume. Yes. Endless Things, which I guess I understand from, based on what you were saying earlier, I think I understand your choice of title a bit better now, why it's called Endless Things, because, well, at least one signification might be just nothing really ends there there isn't much tying up of plot right. points but there is right. one tying up of plot points which which blindsided the hell out of me which is that and this really is a spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't want to know sort of some of the stuff that happens right at the end of the novel pierce having had a bunch of rather unpleasant and hectic times kind of settles down yes and comes yeah. to a 
some kind of truce with life. I'll just leave it at that. If that seems like a yeah, just way of putting it. I think that's, I think that's a just way. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> I have no, uh, no fear of spoilers. I don't okay. think they can possibly spoil anything. I think that the reading, the reading, uh, I, there are, there are, there aren't very many things in this four volumes that are going to, uh, that are going to ruin the, the experience of reading the book. If you know them in advance, it's just too complicated. <laughs> you don't get much by that. Yeah. But in a, something important here is he does finish Fellows Grass book. That's the key to how the final days of his life are going to come together. And finally, he's going to become an okay guy. And one of my favorite little moments, um, you start off with him in the final book. And he seems to be in some sort of monkish convent or a cell you know the monastery garden outside the door and he's working away and he has this time for mass and all that and you say what yeah what did he do <laughs> i thought he'd become a monk i really did and it fits yes well, he's raised catholic it does fit he has it a very strong fit. relationship with catholicism troubled but strong even right troubled but strong exactly and so it's but then you find out after a few pages that no he's just you know sort of taking advantage of these nice uh, monks who will let you stay in their guest house for whatever, however long, you know, if you give them a couple hundred bucks or whatever. And the, the revelation that he's not actually a monk, but he still is working on this novel every day, uh, this book of crafts every day, um, sets up the sense that he's going to be okay. And in the end, of course, he does. He delivers the book, you That's know, true. to... Yeah. to uh, the owner who is and has taken over the great big house and all the duties of taking care of all these people and the big house that once was owned by fellows crafts ancient mentor so he does come he does he does bring it off yeah which i think is is pretty uh pretty extraordinary there's a couple of of savings like that they're not always related to pierce uh and one of them is when pierce tries to chase after his sort of escaping beloved and he and he loses his way and he can't find his way he can't it's all screwed up he does manage to find the house that she has left behind and uh talks to this woman who is connected to that uh beloved woman the the the, she, the grown up the kid from kentucky who has grown up yeah, yeah. Uh, it's connected to her. They're in the same kind of weird cult, you know. And and talking to her, he's, he gets, he finally figures out this idea, or he hears information from her that when he takes it back, when he gets lost because he can't find his way to chase after her, as he gets all screwed up, he doesn't know left from right, and he drives back home again, he has one tiny little piece of information that he got that's going to change everything because it involves the, chi- the other child in the story, the other ch- girl child in the story. And this is going to be, make it possible for them to, for, for his friends and the child's mother to finally rescue her. Yeah. So yeah. he did do, he didn't do a heroic thing. It wasn't, it wasn't heroic. Yeah. Uh, but that's, but it was so uh, important. It was, it was vital that he do this, even if he didn't realize himself how vital. Yeah, he, so he's playing the role. He's he's doing the right thing, even though it's maybe it's not a heroic. You know, it's right. Uh, yes. Um, now there is some heroism in the what I seemed to think of as the kind of climax to book three, when they do mm. when they go to rescue the little girl yes, from the they, clutches yes, of yes. the cult, and what the hell happens there, and what happens to <laughs> what happens to Bo. <laughs> Uh, you know, Harold Bloom uh, really loved these books, and uh, he was just—he was very upset with me for having Bo go away and not ever come back again. But uh, I, it's not the way they, that figures like Bo work in the world. Mm-hmm. I think I mean, so. he's not—I mean, he's a—he's as imbued, so to speak, with Gnostic uh, actualities and and possibilities and he can change stuff and he actually has magic powers of a certain kind but he doesn't really uh, display them very much he's one of the, another one of those characters in this book 
uh, and, and others that I've written where he's just an ordinary person, but somehow he still has possibilities for large motions of the soul. And uh, so um, he is gone, but doesn't, I mean, where, where is it that he drives his Buick back to the, the faraways and picks up all of these people that he has to go and pick up around the world or through the, through the worlds? He comes and he drives and turns in the, in the driveway at Fellows Crafts' house. This is when Fellows Crafts is still alive, but dying. Hmm. And he, this big old Buick 66, turns in at the driveway. And because this is, this is his duty to pick up these various, the people of this age who are going to have to then go off into the, into the next age. They are our avatars, our, that myth that there are 25 or 50 or 100 or whatever number of people who actually keep the world in existence. He is one of them. And he is collecting them as they go because the new world is now about to begin and it's going to be a world mostly without magic. Right. Uh, as, it, as in the third volume. Yeah. I mean, the fourth volume. In the fourth volume. When finally, the magic. Okay, we've done that. We're on now. Now we have moved away. It has, it has done its work. And Bo's uh, work is done also. And he has gone off with all the rest of them. The other ones, I mean, it's like a clown car. They all fit inside this huge old Buick, whoever they are, which he only he knows, and we never find out. Yeah. I feel like Bo is, because he, we, we get a glimpse of his earlier life in New York. Yeah. And I almost feel like he's living on the edge of like, you know, New York is pretty hip in the 50s and the 60s and he's like of the elite of the hipsters he's so hip <laughs> that he knows all the angel-headed tramps and he's, he can read the signs of the city and he right. is receiving all the messages and people are people around him are going man do you know that bow he's heavy cat like that cat is heavy and he's like yes i am heavy but i'm on there's right. levels to this and i'm on another level right. He would never brag about himself. No, no, um, ever. I mean, he would never do that. He expect he assumes that people can see what he has to offer them, and that will be good for them. Like when he goes to Pierce's house finally, in this in Pierce's awful desperation after this big party, which had gone terribly bad for him, he brings this bowl of granola, <laughs> a bag of granola. He says, "Yes, you have to eat this. <laughs> you'll be okay. Just pour a little milk on it, and you'll be fine." And Eating this granola causes Pierce to go through this awful self-accounting that goes back to his childhood. That was another little bit that I really love doing. But yes, he's like that. And one of the one of the scenes, the or episodes, which seems very uh, disconnected in some ways from everything, is when Bo comes to New York. He's got to go to uh, talk to uh, a book editor who was uh, another one of <laughs> Pierce's old lovers. Yeah. And yeah. as he's walking down the street, he gets he gets handed this uh, leaflet about rescue of fallen Sophia and all that. And he says, yes, yes, this is starting to come now. I see where it's all coming around. And he remembers when he went back, when he went through the, in the 1950s, driving west to find, trying to find these people who know about all of those things. They're all also, it's another kind of crazy mountain religion that somehow got pervaded by Gnosticism. But they're reading the, the Apocryphon of John. Yes. Oh, right. That's instead right. of the Gospel of John. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, yeah. How did that happen? I, I, I chose not to explain any of that. But we know that, that that's what's going on. And they are also, what were the French uh, heretics that all got uh, expunged? Oh, the Cathars. Cathars, they're kind of Cathars, where the most holy among them, the most holy thing you can do is stop involving yourself in the world and just stop eating. And you know, uh, yeah. yeah, and so and he knows Bo knows all about all this stuff. Now, and, Fellows Craft, we find out in Volume Four, was raised in I think in New York City. Correct me if I'm wrong, 
No, it's not, but I'm not quite sure where it okay. is. Okay, in a city, I, though. In a, in a city of some place. In fact, if, I think it's the same city that is in the book. The one where uh, Rosie went with her daughter the hospital, to the hospital. That's, that's that, I think it's the same city, that's but 50 years it. before. Yeah. And he's raised in this little Gnostic sect, and they're, they're basically yes, yes. What, what modern scholars would tend to call Sethian Gnostics, seemingly. <laughs> they have a very developed myth of Sophia. It's it's Gnosticism. It's you know. Yes, it is. Classic yes. Hans Jonas style Gnosticism. That's really well. That's where I got it. Yeah, <laughs> got my Gnosticism from Hans Jonas. Especially his writing about suffering Sophia was just so moving to me. And so and uh, <clears throat> it was nobody. I mean, there are people who I guess nowadays criticize him. They don't really think he's a particularly uh, thorough scholar but to me he was just just a wonderful uh, introduction anyway yeah and um, i think hans jonas and francis yates have something in common here that they were such amazing writers and synthesizers and thinkers that they created mm -hmm. incredible works of art and everyone yes. agrees to that right Yes, but the detail-oriented detail <laughs> scholars then come in and say, "Hang on a minute, what's the actual right, evidence for this like hermetic movement in the Renaissance that that Yeats is painting?" What, right. what you know, you know what I mean? Um, yes, absolutely. They're creating a beautiful, they're it's, it, they're beautiful works of the historical imagination, mm. but how much do they match the reality on the ground in history? Is another right. question. Right. Exactly, and. I mean, you know that when you're reading it. I think Hamlet Smell is another book of, the, of that kind. And the one that actually he argues with uh, his old uh, uh, mentor and teacher who's flying off to Egypt. Uh, they start talking about what is, in fact, uh, Black Athena. Ah. Uh, which, uh, and, and, the, and the, this is, you know, flip-flop of who's, who, ha who had it first, you know. And uh, Black Athena was, was claiming that the Greeks got their gods from Egypt, not the other way around, <laughs> which everybody said. And uh, his old mentor is dismissive of this. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, those, that kind of book, and you don't know, I don't know. I have no way of knowing whether Black Athena is good, good history or not. I, uh, all I know is that it's thrilling. We've talked about it in the podcast, actually. We, oh, yeah. We've, we've talked about the Black Athena con controversy. Um, just the fact that it generated so much controversy is very significant for the discipline of classics and the discipline of history. Oh, yeah. history. Because Absolutely. why, if, if the guy's just, let's say the guy's just wrong, because he came under a bunch of criticism from various angles, then why is everyone yeah. so pissed off about it? It's not like the first, <laughs> it's not like the first time someone's been wrong. Certainly not, not the first time somebody's been wrong about Egypt. Indeed. <laughs> As we know. <laughs> My book is full of people wrong about Egypt. Um, yeah. I feel like there's some way that, we, that this discussion of Jonas and, and Yeats in the context of Western esotericism is really fascinating. Um, I feel like there's a connection. I wonder if I can bring it out. It has been said about Renaissance hermetism that... It, it was an incredibly fertile and beautiful and wonderful misreading of historical sources, right? So they yes. thought that Hermes was this ancient sage, which he wasn't. They thought these, yeah. these writings went back to the beginning of human history, which they didn't. Yeah. So what? <laughs> yes. Do you know what right. I mean? Um, yes, exactly. Sure. What they did had took on a life of its own, and it's a, it's a very fascinating life of its own, that, that indeed, in some way is constitutive of the thought worlds we live in now in some meandering right. historical course. So right. maybe Mr. I mean, you know, you know, that's, that also shows up for a second in, uh, in the book when, when uh, his, his mentor from before is, is, has been researching when he's going back to, to, to Egypt to do research. And he comes upon these, this article by Flinders Petrie is one of the greatest names I've ever heard. Flinders Petrie, who he believed that the, that the Hermetic manuscripts were much older, not thousands of years older, but 500 years older than they had ever been credited with being. Um, and uh, so, you know, you can, you have evidences and witnesses and all that kind of stuff of your own if you want to, but I don't think it matters. I think you're absolutely right. You have what are gigantic romances in, in, in one kind of aspect. Uh, the whole of the chemical wedding and 
what Francis Yates does with it and what Giordano Bruno did with uh, all of that uh, art of memory and Egyptian stuff, what, what they did with it constitutes a huge achievement in thought, even if it's the historical stuff got away with them because they, there was no way of knowing the kinds of things that later uh, antiquities and, and archaeology would be able to figure out. But yes, it is. You're absolutely right. Speaking of names, like Flinders Petrie, your book <laughs> features some great names, um, like Fellow's Craft, which is uh, just, uh, I guess, a reference to the Fellow Craft m- Masonic degree, right? Uh, no, I not. I didn't know that. Is there such a degree, a Fellow? You, you are kidding me. No, I don't know very much about um, Masonic ritual. All right, where, does the, where did you get the name Fellow's Craft from? I... Um, uh, where where did I get my fellows? Which I actually think I I uh, there was somebody that did have that as a first name, uh, but I can't remember who it was. But in my in my opinion, it fellows craft is a fellow craftsman of mine. Okay. So that's that was all it was to me. Is that that <laughs> as a novelist, he's another me. And so he's a fellow craftsman in writing. There is a a degree in Freemasonry called fellow craft. Really? I wish I'd known that. <laughs> See, if I were writing, if I were a scholar of Western esotericism, writing my PhD thesis on John Crowley's Egypt, like 30 years from now, when you've presumably shrugged off this mortal coil and gone back to Sophia. Um, yes. <laughs> I would be, I would say this is an obvious reference to Masonry, Freemasonry. And then I would be drawing all kinds of Masonic um, stuff out of your text and going like, see, you can see that there's like a kind of a, a deep engagement with Freemasonry in Crowley's work, Crowley's work, sorry. <laughs> um, but I would be completely wrong, apparently. <laughs> Well, it wouldn't matter by then. <laughs> it wouldn't matter. Yeah, no, well, as long as... Were, as I would, things would be resigned into your hands and out of mine, so you can do what you like. Well, there's a few small references to masonry and uh, Masonic and stuff. There's, there's one thing about at when the wind is blowing away the old world and all these masons kind of show up wearing their aprons and carrying their trowels and stuff like that. You know, middle-aged guys with uh, bowler hats and stuff. I can't remember how it went, but that was that was a way of saying, yeah, that was part of it. And Pierce's father, who was a crazy uh, uh, kind of amateur lover of the past, uh, talks to him about uh, George Washington and the eye on the dollar bill, and all of that. So it's all kind of it's all kind of there. Not very. There's some more, some less. And Masons probably get the least uh, least fun in the book of anybody. Yeah, well, unless unless the Freemasons are truly oh. the, the heirs of the ancient Egyptian temple builders. In which uh. case. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ah, uh, yes, that that might be. That's their story. And all the Masons I've ever known were pretty uh, ordinary guys, <laughs> which is you know, there's a little Masons Hall in my town. I I live in a tiny, tiny town in uh, in. Uh, Western Massachusetts. Okay. Not more than eleven. Not more than eleven hundred people. But at some point, hundred years ago or so, more more like hundred and fifty years ago, they built a huge Mason Hall in the town. And uh, it isn't a Mason's Hall anymore. It's gone through various uh, transformations then. But it was for a long time a big Mason's Hall, and they had they had the in, you, know, you know the stuff their uh, incunabula or whatever they are up there uh, and they would meet and, and do stuff. And they were, you know, basically they were just uh, uh, a men's club more than anything else. They'd have a dinner once a year and the women come in. Yeah. Like that. So um, it's funny. I might be winding down. What if, what if we um, not talked about I think I'm kind of winding down myself, but yeah. go ahead. I, I think that you, touched on almost everything that that i would have liked to to talk about i mean we talked about easter eggs and one of them is of course you know when uh hans jonas shows up in the book for a moment oh and does uh, he himself show up in the book yes he does because he is (laughs) there are three uh philosophers (laughs) who come to 
when when they have remade the old building and the old house uh, and they made it into a sort of a study institute kind of thing. These three guys show up in, uh, one of them is Harold Bloom and the other one of the other is Hans Jonas. And the third guy, I, I can't remember. I read one of his books and found it kind of interesting. Uh, Bloom didn't like him, so, you know. Uh. <laughs> I forgot about that little subplot. That was amazing. Yeah, right. it was a tiny little moment. But there are lots of little tiny moments like that that, that writing a book like this long is just you have to amuse yourself in a way by putting in stuff that maybe other people will catch and maybe they won't how but much there, it is like that how much did this the astrological houses determine what you were going to write like how much was oh, a it, lot so it's it, a lot. you were you were like okay what am i writing in this next section what astrological house is it okay i'm going to study this Yes. How it's not only is yes, it, exactly. I think that I think that I did that fairly um, thoroughly. You had to you had to see it. I mean, you were like, you were looking at the astrological houses and what they meant, what they involved. Did they involve you know sex, uh, death, whatever they did? People, if it's the one where it's the house of death and somebody dies, I think yeah, I think if you went through it, you could. Now there's a there's a there's an assignment for you. If you want to say. How are those houses of the of the twelve uh, the twelve houses? How do they relate to the contents of, of each? And they do, not mm. completely and not in a you know sort of annoyingly strict way, but they do. It and did. I it, it was intended to be that. I mean, I I felt that way about them as I as I was working. I've never been particularly. I mean, I'm not you know a believer in practical astrology or whatever you call it, it tells your life story or something like that. But the, uh, the ideas of a uh, long-standing organization of the universe, I mean, they didn't have any idea how tiny our part of the universe was, which is kind of almost comical now, but the, the, the effect of them and the way they interpreted them, the way they used them and understood their world by means of them has always been fascinating. And when I set out to do this decision about that, it would involve all 12 houses of the Zodiac and each of them with their different seasons and so on. Uh, was, was, yeah, I, I was decided on that long before I actually got in deeply into the story. And in the, in the process of writing, did you ever stop and go, oh my God, what have I got myself into? <laughs> I don't remember. I think that since the thing we've discussed from the beginning here is how sincere is all of this and how much of it is literary inventing and literary amusement in a way. Uh, so I, never, I don't think I remember getting stuck in it. Uh, but I, I tried. It was more like using those astrological houses to organize such a gigantic thing just in order to keep, you know, people from saying, oh, good, that's over. We got something new now, even though it wasn't, even if it wasn't particularly new. And of course the Renaissance organized their, their large studies of nature of things and the world mother by the same kinds of markers. Indeed. And the, um, so, the, the, the Wunderkammer of Rudolf plays a, a major oh, right. yes, part right. in, the, in the narrative. As a right. as a microcosm of of the world, and and kind in some ways radiates out through the whole book. This this location, it does. yeah, it does. It does. It keeps coming up, mm. yeah, till the last moment. And uh, as you say, it all kind of blows away. You don't know uh, what became of it all. But mm. uh, uh, and Fellows Craft goes there and finds out that it's not really anything particularly interesting. Even though he writes home to Boney, his employer writes home about having discovered or seen amazing things in the, in the museums there, but he doesn't, he, you don't know how he feels about them at all. He's just trying to please his uh, mentor, Same. as am I. Okay. And who's your I mean, mentor? My, man, my, my bosses are, of course, you know, readers. Okay. So I'm out to try. I'm out to, to keep them, you know, uh, balanced and and amused. It's like, you know, that's my 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 
my goal was never to to involve people in these esoteric questions or get involved, even though people do all the time. I mean, the people who love the book most seem to like that kind of stuff best. Uh, but actually, real esoteric people, you know, like people who run like esoteric bookstores and stuff like that, seem to have no interest in the book. My goal always with, with any book is you have to amuse and interest people. And uh, that's what you're into. It's a circus, you know, you're, in, you're, you're uh, cracking a whip here, making the elephants dance. Uh, if you don't do that, it's not going to come to anything. It's just going to be sludge. John Crowley, thank you so much for coming on the Schwepp and talking about your wonderful occult novel. Much appreciated. Oh, I appreciate the invitation. It was a lot of fun. I love, I love talking about myself. So thank you again. <laughs> thank you, and uh, stay esoteric. Okay. <laughs> All right.